you know, I keep talking about my first ever internet lesson plan involving Ray Bradbury and RayBradbury.com, and I just can't stop reading some of the stuff on there. So here's what I learned just now. Bradbury never lost his childlike sense of play, fun, and expressiveness. His grandchildren remember him as having more toys than they did. Toy ray guns, robots, stuffed dinosaurs, oversized stuffed animals of Rocky and Bullwinkle lounging in cushioned chairs, and even a head floating in a glass jar, courtesy of Alfred Hitchcock. His final home had wall-to-wall shelves filled with books as well as art, movies, TV, props, and trinkets from his travels to Mexico. Each Christmas, Bradbury asked his wife to give him toys instead of any other gifts. One of his granddaughters described his home and office as a riot of activity with junk everywhere, while a lifelong friend and colleague said, When I think of Ray, I think of his house overflowing with books, papers, toys, and cats. Somehow a physical embodiment of a cross-section of the American brain. Well, today's literary quote has nothing to do with toys. But if you've ever watched the Ray Bradbury Theater on YouTube, it was a Canadian uh, television program, uh, you kind of see his room has got the dinosaurs and all that on it. Anyhow, today's quote has nothing to do with animals, toys, or dinosaurs, I don't think, but it might. Greetings and welcome to the Teaching ALA podcast where this summer we combine my two favorite things, literature and summer vacation. Get ready for some literary quotes. In addition to talking about RayBerry.com, I've talked uh, several podcast episodes about his ability to see society and science in the future. This is a mind-blowing ability. Today, I want to switch gears and talk about how the modern human deals with unwanted emotions. This is something that Bradbury nails in Fahrenheit 451. This quote that I'm about to read takes place in the Montag living room, which, of course, you know, has three giant wall TVs, but not four because they're saving up for it. Mildred has invited over some guests and Montag's getting a little tired of them. He says, and I quote, Montag fixed his eyes upon her quietly. Go home. And think of your first husband divorced and your second husband killed in a jet and your third husband blowing his brains out. Go home and think of the dozen abortions you've had. Go home and think of that and your damn cesarean sections too and your children who hate your guts. Go home and think how it all happened and what did you ever do to stop it? Go home, go home before I knock you down and kick you out the door. End quote. Wow, straight fire right there. You know, nothing ends a fine night of socializing faster than to go home and think of your dead husband and your dozen abortions blast. I wouldn't recommend this line at your next dinner party. And then he, and he threatens, threatens to knock, knock the dinner guests down and kick them out the door. Not exactly in a partying mood. We see here that Mildred's friend has gone through some difficulties in her past that Montag doesn't mind bringing up. And although Montag's response lacks a little bit of sensitivity, he is onto something. In this novel, people don't want to think of things that make them sad or angry or anxious or to feel anything negative. And in order to avoid these emotions... These futuristic people distract themselves with giant TVs or music or whatever distraction they can find. This is an accurate description, perhaps, of how technology, food, drugs, etc. are used today. When we are feeling discomfort or we're upset, do we just turn on the TV and binge watch our favorite reality TV show or perhaps scroll mindlessly on Facebook? Or my favorite, my personal favorite, eat a jar of peanut butter. It's my favorite buffering activity. It seems that our buffering activities cause much more damage than simply focusing on our emotions. So maybe we're not all that different than Mildred's friends. You know I'm amazed at how accurate Bradbury's vision of the future has turned out to be. But I want to dive a little deeper and talk about symbolism in the novel right now. You can, of course, create your lesson plan involving symbolism with a chart. (laughs) I know, what a shock, huh? I'm going to talk about a chart. Of course, you know, I might do lesson plans now in summer. 
It's a simple three-column chart. Left column, symbols. Middle column, specific example. Right column, interpretation of symbol. Now, because this, because the, this particular symbol related to today's quote, I want to talk about mirrors. Or more specifically, Granger wants to talk about mirrors. Granger suggests they build a giant mirror factory and take a look at themselves, which means he's either really vain or he's commenting on the importance of self-understanding. Clarice is also compared to a mirror for helping Montag see himself. The intellectual Granger is probably familiar with Julius Caesar, in which Brutus is counseled by Cassius to see himself as he is. Other symbols in the novel include the titles of each section, blood, fire, and the phoenix, and since we're on the subject of lesson plans, over at ELA Common Core Lesson Plans, I mean, really, you're probably not going to feel like writing lesson plans, but you do have that nagging feeling that well, I need to get prepared for the school year, but I just don't feel like writing lesson plans. Don't worry, I've written them for you. I combine most of the lesson plan units I've created into one PDF file and have made it available to you. They're in the show notes. The link's in the show notes. Or just go to ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, click that green button at the top. Now, who knows how green it's going to be by the time you listen to this, if you're listening to this in the future. The the uh, document contains complete units, 33 short stories, 11 poetry units, all types of writing, three novels, two plays, and the Odyssey. You could literally not have to create a lesson plan next year. Let's get back to RayBradbury.com and his vision of social change. He was the people's champion. Bradbury would often speak enthusiastically about education, libraries, urban living, and the importance of freedom. He developed a passion for city planning and participated in the development of Disney World's experimental community of tomorrow, we know as it as Epcot, in Orlando, and the Horton Plaza Shopping Center in San Diego, California. He wanted cities to be recreated to be better for everyone, not just for the elite. Bradbury always wanted to be part of the solution, not the problem. He also spoke out on public issues such as the decision for Los Angeles prioritize freeways over public transit. He always aimed to engage and inspire. I honestly don't know which side he took on the freeway versus public transportation argument. I'm guessing he was for public transportation, but wouldn't that lessen one's freedom to move about? Of course, the freeway system in Southern California is usually fairly crowded. Do you remember Carmageddon? When was that? It's like 2010 where they had to close down like the 405 and the 105 and the something like that. And everyone was expecting this. They called it Carmageddon, which for, my, for I'm thinking Carmageddon was that's one of the most creative names the news has ever come up with. Turns out Carmageddon didn't really happen. Enough people decided not to travel that day. Good for them. Good for them. Thanks for listening to the Teaching ELA podcast. For more teacher-ready, student-ready lesson plans, head on over to ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com. That's ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, where we have hundreds of lesson plans and handouts that are ready to use right now. And as always, if this podcast has helped you thrive in the classroom, we'd appreciate a like and a review. 